Good morning, everybody. How are we all doing? Great. Carl, I love it when you're here. You're just the best. <laughs> Open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1067. And I do, it's already been said, but I want to reiterate, happy birthday, Revelation Church. Um, it's, it's wild that we are five years old. Um, in, in some ways, that doesn't feel like much. I think Eric said we've just kind of graduated to kindergarten. Um, but uh, many young churches don't make it that far. And by the grace of God, we've been given the opportunity to continue to um, be a community in North Idaho together. And I'm just super grateful for that. I did want to show you a picture. This is um, five years ago when we, we got into this space. Uh, it was still the Coeur d'Alene Wedding Chapel, and this was our lease agreement. Um, this, the, Suzanne, the woman that ran the facility, found a piece of paper. You can see there's some other note on the bottom of it, and she just took out a Sharpie and, and wrote up a lease agreement for us, and that's how we got into this space five years ago. Um, it was amazing how wild that process was, but um, grateful for this facility that we get to use on Sundays, grateful for this community that God has built over the last five years. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews, uh, we're going to be talking about, um, we're working through this spiritual discipline series, Transformation. We're going to be talking about corporate worship this morning. Um, as always, if you have questions throughout this morning, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt, and uh, we'll take a look at some of those at the end. So let me pray for us, and we will get into it. Lord God, thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you that um, while we, uh, we don't deserve to be loved, to be favored, to be chosen, to be gathered into this new family uh, that we find ourselves in, you are just abundant in your mercy and your love towards people. And we can um, come together on a Sunday morning, and this isn't the sum total of what your church is, but this is one of the expressions of the way that you bind us together. And I just pray that as we practice this rhythm of community week after week, uh, that you would do your work in our hearts and change us. We pray that your present Holy Spirit would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say this morning. Just bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. A man is sleeping peacefully in his comfortable bed on a Sunday morning. Suddenly his wife barges into the room and says, get up, you'll be late for church. And he groans, I don't want to go to church. His wife says, why not? And he says, the people drive me crazy. Nobody likes me there. And it is so boring. And the wife says, but you have to go to church this morning. And he says, give me one good reason why I should go to church. And she looks at him and says, because dear, you're the pastor. You like the jokes? <laughs> We started last week this series on uh, spiritual discipline. 
We titled it Transformation. And what we talked about was this idea that Jesus actually wants us to be different people. He has... He has declared us new creations, but the process of what we call sanctification is that we would slowly over time be transformed to to look more like Jesus. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be taking a look at different spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices that God has ordained for us to participate in in order to be changed. This morning, we're talking about this gathering, the corporate worship experience. And maybe you've never thought of going to church as a spiritual discipline, but I bet most of us have at least occasionally had seasons where participating in worship together has seemed difficult, to where you can relate with the pastor in my joke and not want to go to church. Andrew Murray, a pastor uh, in a previous generation, said, meeting God is a thing of infinite blessedness and peace and power. Meeting our fellow men is often accompanied with so much of weakness, distraction, and failure that some have thought it indeed better to forsake the assembling together. And I know that as much as I often look forward to Sunday morning, there are times when I think, man, Do I want this to be part of my rhythm of life? The reality is is that spiritual practices, when they get difficult, is often when God does his best work. There's a lot of talk in our particular uh, realm of the American church about um, what gathering together should look like. There's There's a group of churches that maybe you are aware of called Nine Marks, Uh, based out of Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C., and they are very strongly believe that this gathering is the centerpiece of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Then there's another group of churches that I love and respect called the Soma Communities. Um, They were started in in, uh, Western Washington, Oregon, and and they would say that, no, the the small group, the home fellowship, the, the, the one another's gathered together a dozen people eight people, that's the centerpiece of community for God's people. And, and, and I, I think if you know me at all, you know that, that I'm going to try to take both of those things and mix them together and say that we, we need these rhythms. And so this week, we're talking about the Sunday morning experience. Next week, we're going to talk about our gospel community. Spencer mentioned that there's still opportunity to get involved in a gospel community if you're not. Um, But for us, these are really two pedals on a bicycle for our Christian formation. So as we look at Hebrews this morning, chapter 10, I want to ask the question, why, why do we gather? Why does the author of Hebrews think we should be gathering together? And I think the first answer to that question is that we gather for God. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. The first thing we need to remember about worshiping God together is that that God doesn't need us. And maybe you're, maybe you're familiar with this, maybe not, but we believe in a Trinitarian God. We believe in a God who is 
uh, one being in three persons. And what that means is that these, the three persons of this Trinity are the most happy, loving, joyful, satisfied being in the universe. And all of that satisfaction is contained within God himself. And so when we gather to worship God, he is not lonely. He is not sad. He doesn't need encouragement from his people. He is overflowing with every good thing completely on his own. And he doesn't need us. But the crazy thing is the very act of gathering together brings us into the presence of God in a way that we cannot experience alone. Donald Whitney writes, the Bible says that the body of each Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But specific references to being a temple of the Holy Spirit are made far more often about the congregation of believers than about individual believers. So there is a sense in which going to worship with the people of God is going to the Lord's temple where his presence abides. In a true church, his word is preached, his son is presented in the Lord's Supper, his spirit ministers through many and diverse gifts, and so forth. The solitary worshiper does not have access to the presence of the Lord in exactly these ways. While there are experiences with God that are only given in private worship, it is equally true that the Lord manifests his presence in, unique, in ways unique in public worship. And so when we gather as God's people, God is our audience, and he wants us. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that this is the reality. We, we have, since we have boldness, and we don't have time to go through the whole book of Hebrews where he makes the case that this is who we are in Christ. We have been adopted into his family. We have been invited into his presence. But we don't come into his presence to gain his favor. We come because we already have it. We get boldness assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean. This is, these are things that are true about you this morning if you are in Christ. You are accepted by God and welcomed into his presence. When I was little, we used to, um, we, we moved to Coeur d'Alene when I, when I was very young and the rest of, of our family was in Yakima, Washington. And my dad's mom, Grammy, lived in Yakima. And we would go to Grammy's house, and it took three hours on I-90 to get to Ellensburg. And then we turned off of I-90, and we started counting hills. We would go up a hill and down a hill, up a hill and down a hill. And I knew that there were three hills that we had to get over before we got to Yakima. And every hill, my excitement would grow. Because when we got to Grammy's house, there would be cake, and there would be cookies, and there would be fried chicken and chocolate gravy. And if you don't know what that is, you're missing out. And there was never a moment on the way to Grammy's house that I had any indication that it would be bad or boring or difficult because I knew who I was to Grammy. And I knew who she was to me. And I knew I was safe and I was loved. And it was a joy every single time. 
And I wonder sometimes, do we feel that way about God? Do we feel like we can come into God's presence among God's people and feel safe, feel loved? Do we get excited to experience him? When we begin to understand and internalize who God is, we we begin to recognize how worthy he is of our worship. Worship is the practice of declaring something valuable, right? This This is why God is at the center of our gathering. We talk about him, we sing about him, we pray to him, we encourage one another to think about him. We are declaring that he matters most. And when we gather with God as our audience, not because he needs us, because we need him and he wants us. He invites us in. He looks forward to us. We gather for God. But that's not the only reason we're here. We also gather for ourselves. Look at verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. See, the the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are suffering because of their faith. Uh, They they grew up in the Jewish faith and they've decided that Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is their king and they have converted. They've, They've sworn their allegiance to him and yet that has ostracized them from their previous community. And the whole book of Hebrews is the author trying to convince them that they shouldn't reject Christ. They shouldn't go back to what they had before. They should stay with Jesus. The author spends so much time arguing that Jesus is superior and that walking away from him would be disastrous. And this verse is just one more opportunity for him to say, keep trusting in Christ. But he ties this directly to gathering with God's people. Donald Whitney again says, neglect of church attendance is almost always one of the first outward signs of backsliding and one of the initial steps taken by those whose path ends in complete apostasy. Now, this isn't necessarily true. I'm sure we can think of exceptions of this. Maybe this has been your experience of disconnecting from a church community for a while, and that's okay. But you do probably know people who no longer follow Jesus, maybe don't even believe in God And one of the first moves they made was they just kind of wandered off from his people. And I think the reverse is also true. I think committed regular participation in corporate worship is often a catalyst for deeper growth in Christlikeness. When people make the decision, like, I'm going to commit myself to this community, it strengthens their faith. It's obviously true with the Hebrews that all they had was themselves. All they had was their commitment to Jesus together, and that was keeping them. And the author says, don't don't leave that. Don't walk away from that. And verse 23 is a great example of the both and nature of transformation. We talked about this last week, but, but the verse says that we need to hold on to our confession of faith. Why? Because God is faithful. Right? There is a sense in which we bear responsibility, but ultimately it rests with God. Our pursuit of Christ through worship, especially worship together, is one of the means by which God's promises to us are fulfilled. 
Whitney again says that the more we truly worship God, the more we become like him. One of the mechanisms of becoming like God, we, we talked about this last week of being transformed from an acorn to an oak tree, is the people of God around you in this place. Because the, the reality is, I need you. I need you to encourage me when I feel defeated. I need you to rebuke me when I take my eyes off of Jesus. I need to hear your voices sing the truth of God to my soul when I'm anxious and afraid. Because I can't do it alone. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful line. He says, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth great music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. When you begin to realize just the gravity of the experience of God together and you become consistent in walking it out, it begins to change you. But we have to be clear about how this works. I think that a lot of our church culture is, um, is weird. Uh, <laughs> we talk about Sunday morning as this continual peak experience. I don't know if you've ever experienced this if you follow churches on Instagram, which you shouldn't. It's, it's not good. Um, but you'll often see posts that say, like, best day ever, right? Everything about today is going to be more awesome than any other day you've ever experienced. And then the next week, it's even better than that, right? You're going to come to church and you're going to have this radical experience with the divine. And that's definitely possible. God can turn your life upside down in gathered worship. He can do whatever he wants. But that's not really how the gathering is designed to work. Because the third thing we see in Hebrews is that gathering is a habit. Look at the beginning of verse 25. He... he, he encourages us not to not neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Some of the Hebrews had made a habit out of not gathering together. They had neglected this discipline to the point that a habit of participation had given away to a habit of neglect. And habit is a really important part of understanding all of the spiritual disciplines. This, this right here, you know what this is? This is a G chord. I can move my fingers just like this, even though there's not a guitar neck in my hand, into the shape of a G chord. I can do it without thinking about it. I can probably do it in my sleep. But when I first started learning how to play the guitar, I did this. Got to put that there, and then I got to grab that one and put it there, and then I got to put that one over there, and I couldn't hold it. Because playing the guitar is a habit. You build up muscle memory in your hands over time to learn a thing. 
Habit forming is the act of taking conscious, willpower-driven practices and through repetition, moving them over to your unconscious. The scary thing about this process of habit forming, though, is that it works even when we don't intend it to. Automatically doing things that we haven't given a lot of thought of create strong habits. For the Hebrews, the neglect probably wasn't a case of them trying really hard to skip church every week. And yet, that practice over time became a habit of non-participation with God's people. Philosopher James K. Smith says, since research indicates that only about 5% of our daily activity is the product of conscious, intentional actions that we choose, one can see that there's a lot at stake in the formation of our automatic unconscious. Last year, we participated in a gospel community at the Hamilton's house, and um, they live out in Hayden. And we also, uh, I, I led the youth group, which was meeting at the Nelson's house. They live in the landings. And so Tuesday night was gospel community night, and I left work, and I got in my car, and I showed up at the Nelson's house, and there was no one there, because it wasn't Wednesday, it was Tuesday. And then I drove to the Hamilton's house, and I found the Nelsons there, because they were in our gospel community. They said, good news, your house is fine. I checked. But do you ever do that? Do you, you ever just find yourself driving somewhere out of habit? You didn't, you didn't think about it. You just went there. And this is the power of habit. The things that you do all the time are the things that you will end up doing all the time. In Desiring the Kingdom... Uh, James Smith talks about some habits being thin and others being thick. We form thin habits as instruments to some other end, and they don't tend to form our identity. Uh, an example he gives is toothbrushing. Uh, we don't want cavities or gum disease or bad breath, and so we create a habit of brushing our teeth. But Smith says it would be an odd thing, for instance, for me to think of myself first and foremost as a toothbrusher. What do you do? I brush teeth. Other people's teeth? No, just my own. That's who I am. That would be weird. It's a thin habit. Thick habits, on the other hand, are practices that move our unconscious life that are an end to themselves, and that by practicing them actually change us. We form habits that actually form us back, habits that shape our identities. Thick habits will transform you over time and not necessarily in a good way. Endlessly scrolling on your phone or ingesting hours of partisan political media every day, making a daily trip through the McDonald's drive through all of these can form habits that over time will be bad for you. Spiritual disciplines are a thick habit. Specifically, gathering together as God's people is a thick habit. Going to a church service will probably not change your life, but becoming someone who consistently participates in gathered worship for decades absolutely will change your life. And being someone who builds a habit of neglect will form you into a different kind of person. Statistically, 9% of Kootenai County attends an evangelical church service each Sunday. It's about 16,000 people. That seems like a lot, but we have a county of 180,000. So as an uh, area of our country, we are very unchurched. Most of your neighbors 
coworkers, people you see downtown don't have a habit of being a part of a community of God's people on a regular basis. And maybe you, you hear that statistic and you think, yeah, I mean, that's our rhythm. Maybe we go about once a month. Others of you would say, no, I'm, I'm here every week. And the point about talking about this data is not shame or pride. Those are easy to get to if we want to, but not helpful. But it's just to point out that people who identify as Jesus people, as Christians, often aren't taking one of the primary means of transformation that God has ordained for us. And they're not taking advantage of it over time. Because if you become someone who consistently participates in gathered worship, it will transform you. Some caveats to that. Stay home when you're sick. Stay home when your kids are sick. We don't want that. Nobody wants that. Take a vacation. But maybe visit a good church somewhere when you're on vacation. If you're out in the woods, maybe there's no church. You can do, you can do church in the woods. Um, but I found it really uh, life-giving to go visit a church in a city that I don't live in when I'm, out of, when I'm on vacation. But don't make a habit of neglecting this spiritual discipline because it will transform you. And the other thing is it will transform others. Because the other, another reason the author of Hebrews says we gather is that we gather for other people. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as, our, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Why should we gather with the church? For the benefit that we bring to the lives of other people. This is a very different question than what do I get out of gathered worship? It's what can I give away when I'm here? Consider one another, he says. I wonder, do we think that way on the way to church on Sunday? As you drive to this place, do you ask the question, I wonder who I will see this morning that I can encourage? I wonder who I will see that needs me to speak a word of life to them. I wonder who I will be able to serve this morning. Versus, man, I hope they sing the songs that I like. I hope they don't close down one of the kids' classrooms. That's a real pain. I hope the coffee's good this morning. What are we here for? The author of Hebrews seems to think that the work of the gospel and the grace of God that has been poured out on us has given us the ability and even the obligation to make other people our priority in gathered worship. And notice the reasoning. He says, as you see the day approaching... As we recognize that the coming of Jesus for his people is at hand. We are, we are to be people that always have our lives oriented towards Christ and his coming kingdom. The day of our ultimate transformation, like we talked about last week. Now, there's obviously some overlap here with what we're going to talk about next Sunday, which is gospel community. When we gather in small relational groups and go deep with one another. Super important, and we're going to focus on it next Sunday. These commands definitely apply to both of those situations. But as we wrap up this morning, I thought it would just be helpful to kind of highlight the things that we actually do when we gather. 
the kind of things that God intends to transform us by. What, would, what do we do when we gather? This is, this is what's called liturgy. Uh, liturgy just means the plan that we follow as we move through the service. And oftentimes we talk about liturgical churches and non-liturgical churches. Liturgical churches usually have candles and incense and, and robes and, and they're um, uh, ornate and they follow a really strict plan. And the non-liturgical services are just like, you know, a guy with a guitar and, and somebody wearing jeans and it's very casual. But the reality is that every church gathering has a liturgy. Every church gathering has a plan that they follow to work through the service. So what is the liturgy at Revelation Church? And, and maybe one, in one sense, this feels like a silly question because we're all here right now doing it. But I want to walk us through what we're actually doing each week together. And if you're visiting with us, I, thanks for being here. This, what a great Sunday. <laughs> you just get a primer on, on how we do church. Uh, and, and if you're not a Christian, again, welcome. We're glad that you're here. So what do we do? We, we pray. That's one thing we do. We pray at several points. At the beginning of our service, we, we stand and we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Then a member of the congregation leads us in an extemporaneous prayer. Eric did that this morning. And we began praying this prayer together because the elders felt that we should pray as a congregation with one voice. And this was a prayer that Jesus said we should be praying anyway, so we thought it made sense. This practice also highlights something that I believe is really valuable about our liturgy, that there are parts that we keep the same every week. We always pray the Lord's Prayer. But then there are parts that we change. Eric prayed a beautiful prayer of his own making over us this morning. He was invited to use his gifts to bless us through that prayer. The person leading the music... Whoever's preaching also offers prayer to God on behalf of the congregation at several points during the liturgy. And, and this is really important. I, if you've been in like the church world for a while, there's this tendency to make prayer like a transition tool. We got to get the band off stage. So you pray and that'll give them time to get their in-ears out. And, and that's really annoying to me. And I understand it. It's, it makes sense pragmatically, but Prayer is a unique part of the liturgy where a member of the congregation is speaking directly to God on your behalf. Do you ever think about that? Hey God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the audacity to stand in front of these people and have my words stand in for this community in this moment. And so I would encourage you when we pray, pay attention what's being prayed over you. It matters. It's important. Another thing we do is we sing. We sing a couple different times at the beginning and near the end. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Singing is this multifaceted experience that accomplishes so many different things. And I love talking about it and we don't have enough time to go through all of it. But a couple things Singing helps us memorize the truth of Scripture. It's a way to remind one another of the truth of the gospel, and it expresses gratitude to God. Researcher David Taylor says, when human beings sing in a common space, their neurons begin to wire together. 
That experience of corporate embodied singing is tapping into these hormonal places in our brains and bodies that fund a sense of being felt by one another. Singing is ontologically what helps us to feel like we belong somewhere. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel that when we sing. When I hear our voices in, with, with one voice speaking the truth of the gospel together, it unites us. While, while the Psalms speak sometimes of individual singing, most often the command is that groups of people are to sing together. Psalm 95 says, come, let's shout joyfully to the Lord. Let's triumphantly, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to him in song. Come on, let's do it together. Singing is a big part of what the people of God have done together historically. And we give about 30 minutes to it in our gathering every week. The songs we sing and the time we give to them has a purpose. They're meant to form us. They're not just, well, we should probably sing some songs together. No, we think about these things. Because over months and years, internalizing the truth of the gospel in the songs we sing is one of the means that God uses to transform us. I guarantee you, you will forget most of the sermons you've ever heard. But over time, you will remember the songs. And God will use those songs to bring you comfort and encouragement in times of struggle. We, we don't, this isn't a, um, a forward-facing thing, but, but when Jackson and, um, and Sarah, primarily, when they are putting together um, the songs for Sunday, they follow a theme. They follow the gospel theme of, of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And if you pay close attention, you'll hear it. We typically start with a song that praises God for who he is and the creation that he uh, has made. We talked about the rising sun this morning and how God is bigger than the rising sun. And then we move into a song, and, and many of our songs cover a lot of different themes, but we move into a song that highlights our need. We are broken and sinful people. We don't deserve God's grace, but he gives it. And then we typically move into a song that provides comfort, assurance of salvation. Hey, you know what? Even though we are broken, even though we just sang about our sin, Christ has rescued us and redeemed us from that. And then we'll close the service most often with a call to go out into the world and preach the gospel or a reminder of what the kingdom of God will be like one day. And again, we don't don't broadcast that but we do it intentionally because we want the songs that we sing to form us in certain ways. Another thing we do is we open the word of God together. We make sure to have the word of God read over us every week. In Revelation 1.3, we read, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. Now, that has a specific point for the book of Revelation, but in general, the idea would be that when the church gathers together, someone stands up and reads the word of God over them. In the first century, no one would have owned a Bible. There would have been, if they were lucky, one copy of the scriptures per church. And every week we ask men and women to come up and proclaim God's word over us. And if you've noticed, we stand for that because we submit ourselves to the God's word as our highest authority and we show it the honor that it is due. And again, we've chosen to make this part of our liturgy because of the way that over time it forms us. 
And then we devote a fairly large amount of time to the preaching of the word. Somebody, myself or someone else will come up here and exposit God's word in a certain way. Second Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and teaching. And again, for, for Paul, why should Timothy preach? Because Jesus is coming back soon. Our gathering is in expectation of the kingdom of God. So we spend time in God's word, and God's word forms us. It shapes us. After that time, we recite the Nicene Creed together. And if you're unfamiliar, the Nicene Creed is, is a statement that was put, to, put out by the entire church in 325, almost 1,700 years ago. And what was going on in the, the world at the time was that all of these people who were preaching uh, came out with all of these different ideas about who God was and who Jesus was and, and what the faith that the apostles taught actually was. And there were all these competing views circling around the Roman Empire. And so all of the bishops of the churches got together at Nicaea and they had a council not to come up with what Christians believe, but to reaffirm what Christians believe. And they formulated this creed that has stood the, the test of time and is affirmed by every Christian around the world today. We recite it weekly because we want these beliefs about God to sink deeply into our souls. We also recite it to remind ourselves that we are part of a much bigger story. The Christian faith didn't begin five years ago when Revelation Church was planted. It didn't begin 80 years ago when Church Venture Northwest, our, our network, began. It didn't begin 400 years ago with the Protestant Reformation. We are part of an unbroken line of Jesus' people that goes all the way back to the day of Pentecost. And reciting the creed should be a comfort to you that we are part of something that is strong and solid. Trevin Wax wrote recently about feelings of inferiority, 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 that's a hard word, that we might have when popular voices in our culture mock our faith. You ever feel that way, that, that somebody who is, is famous or popular on the internet or in your life just thinks that Christianity is stupid? The modern mind has come up with newer, better ideas to replace these old superstitions. Wax writes, the reality is we're the ones living in a great castle, an intellectual tradition that goes all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures, an inheritance that incorporates what's best in the great Greek philosophers, a pattern of thought refined by the great medieval and modern theologians, a movement that has bequeathed the towering minds of Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas, and those are just the A's. See, the reality is the very tools that modern minds try to wheel against our faith have been given to them by the greatest theologians in Christian history. We are on a sure footing, part of a great tradition, and reciting the creed together is a reminder of that. We also celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. We offer the bread and the cup every Sunday morning. Jesus commands us to celebrate this as often as we do it, and this gives room for churches of different traditions to celebrate on different timetables, and that's just fine. But we believe that 
this meal matters a lot. We believe that it is a means of grace to us. And so we put it at the center of our gathering every week. Christians differ on exactly what happens at the communion table, but I like what John Calvin says. He says, I agree, of course, that the breaking of the bread is a sign, not the reality. But having said this, we rightly infer from the display of the sign that the thing itself is displayed. Unless we accuse God of fraud, we can never say that he offers an empty sign. If by the breaking of bread, the Lord truly represents the partaking of his body, there can be no doubt that he imparts the reality too. We must always remember that the truth of the thing signified is also present. The Lord puts the symbol of his body into your hands to assure you that you truly partake of him. It gives us such assurance to know that the visible sign is given as the seal of an invisible gift. So Calvin, back in the 1500s, he's pushing against a Roman Catholic understanding that Christ is re-sacrificed in the communion meal every Sunday and that the bread and the cup transubstantiate, that's a big fancy Latin word, into the body and blood of Jesus. He's saying, no, that's not quite right, but, but, he's, but he is affirming that we are meant to understand communion as a real participation with Christ. That what happens here is not just a memorial of Jesus' work on the cross, but an actual experience of his divine life in us. And how does that all work? Nobody knows. But I've come to believe that in many ways, this is the most important aspect of our gathering. When I prepare a sermon, I always ask the question, how does whatever topic we are discussing in this text lead to the table? These pieces of our liturgy form this weekly gathering this rhythm that we have as God's people. And they create for us a foundational spiritual discipline. And I believe that this spiritual discipline, if practiced over time, will transform you into Christ-likeness. As we, as we close, I, I want to I share two quotes from a Puritan author, David Clarkson, who was an Englishman and a few centuries ago. He says, the most wonderful things that are now done on earth are wrought in the public ordinances. What happens in the gathering? Through the commonness and spiritualness, though the commonness and spiritualness of them makes them seem less wonderful. It is true indeed, the Lord has not confined himself to work these wonderful things only in public, yet the public ministry is the only ordinary means by which he works them. He says, God can do anything he wants and can transform you by any means whatsoever, but he has given us this people and this gathering as a means to do it. And so he, he continues his encouragement. What you do in public worship, do it with all your might. Shake off that slothful, indifferent, lukewarm temper, which is so odious to God. Then will the Lord draw near when our whole man waits on him. Then will the Lord be found when we seek him with our whole heart. So as we Practice spiritual discipline as a people. I just would encourage you to make the gathering together a regular habit. Not because you're going to come to church on a Sunday and your mind's going to be blown. That might happen. Probably not. 
But as you commit to singing with people, to praying with people, to sitting under the preaching of the word, to participating in the bread and the cup together, week after week, month after month, year after year, God will use that habit to change you, to make you more like Jesus. Let's do some questions. Do you hold to the five solas or the Protestant of the Protestant Reformation? Sola Scriptura, Sola Christus, Sola Fide, Sola Gradia, and Sola Dea Glory. If so, why? If not, why? That's a good question. Yeah, I do. I'm thoroughly Protestant. I think uh, one of the things that I've discovered as someone who's grown up Protestant is that I was... Again, I was kind of taught that like the Protestant Reformation is where the church started. Like it was Jesus and the apostles and then darkness until Martin Luther. And uh, I've, I've come to really be blessed by m- many things from the Eastern Orthodox and the medieval Catholic traditions. Not all the things, still Protestant, still lots of uh, disagreements with a lot of the details, but... Um, yeah, I think the Protestant Reformation, our Catholic friends would say that it, it was a um, deviation from the faith. Uh, I, w- I would say that it was, a, it was a return. It was a correction to the Catholic faith. We'll, 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 we'll say the creed together, and one of the words we'll use is, is Catholic. Catholic means universal. And some people are like, whoa, are we Catholic? No, we're not Catholic. We are part of the universal church. And... Uh, part of what, what the Protestant reformers believed that they were doing, and I think they were right, is that they were making a course correction in that Catholic church that the medieval Roman church had um, gone astray from. And so, yeah, firmly, firmly Protestant. The word day is capitalized in verse 25. Do you know why? Well, that's a good question. Um, so our English Bibles aren't always... Um, doing the same things as the manuscripts they're translating. Either the Greek manuscript probably wouldn't have had capitalization at all. It would have been all the same case. Um, but the translators of our Bible um, feel that uh, something is happening here. In my Bible, actually, the word day isn't. So you, whoever wrote this question has a different version, slight, at least slightly, than I do. I think the reason behind that is that the word day signifies a special day, the day of the Lord. And people debate this. Um, A lot of uh, the older commentaries that I read this week said that the day that is being referred to is the destruction of Jerusalem in in 70. That um, that the author of Hebrews is anticipating this day when Jesus spoke that that the the city would be destroyed by the Romans. And that there's a lot of... um, uh, there's, there, there are certain uh, views of the end times and the interpretation of prophecy that say, would say that a lot of these um, prophecies about the future find their fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in the, in the year 70. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that the day 
is shorthand for the day of the Lord, which is a phrase that's used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to talk about the day when Jesus returns finally to establish his kingdom. And I think that's a better reading of this verse, um, but that would be why in your Bible, the translation team thought that it was the day of the Lord and capitalized it. So, question. We're going to take communion. Maybe you've thought about communion differently than, than I described it briefly. Um, maybe you've been taught to just see it as something that we do for some strange reason, that, it, that take it or leave it. Uh, maybe you feel that it's incredibly important as well. Um, I think the church for many, many centuries has seen it as an incredibly important act of obedience and rhythm to participate in. We, one of the ways we reference communion is we call it a sacrament. The word sacrament is a Latin word, and it is, was originally the military oath of allegiance that an officer would swear to the Roman government. You would, you would swear your sacramentum and to be faithful to Caesar. And over the centuries, the church adopted that word because in their mind, we, they weren't swearing allegiance to Caesar any longer. They were swearing allegiance to Jesus. We are, this morning, Jesus' people under his authority committed to do his will. And this is many things for us, but it is definitely our weekly reaffirmation of that commitment. And so I would invite us as we sing together, uh, if you're a Christian here this morning, to come and take the bread and the cup. We have wine or juice for the dictates of your conscience. Take it back to your seat and just, just reflect on what God is doing in your heart. Maybe you came to church this morning busy and distracted and kind of disinterested. And I hope you're feeling like maybe God is doing something when we gather. Maybe it's not something that's going to radically change your day, but maybe you are at a place where you can recommit to like, hey, maybe over time, this is something that's actually going to affect me. Spend some time meditating on that as you take communion this morning. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.